0: is Mr. Brik. I'm assistant professor at Kiev School of Sociology. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm assistant professor at Kiev School of Economics, of course, and this has been a while <laughs> for us. This is a day uh 22 of of the war, which has been a, like a one very long day for me with many small naps. That's why I'm talking uh, weird and I apologize to the audience. Um Unfortunately, uh, the circumstances of um, that motivated us to, to launch these lectures um, are very uh, dramatic and sad. We are uh, watching uh, the news from Eastern, Southern and Northern Ukraine. Uh, our cities are bombed. Civilians are uh, suffering um, yesterday. Uh, there was an air strike strike in the city of Mariupol, destroying a drama theater in the very city center. So this war is not only against the statehood, military, and civilians. This war has been against culture and knowledge. And here at Kiev School of Economics, we want to show that academics um, stand strong in solidarity with uh, all other Ukrainians. And we want to keep doing what we uh, uh, know how to do, yeah, to produce knowledge, to share knowledge, to discuss knowledge. And that's why we have initiated this series of solidarity talks, inviting uh, top intellectuals, thinkers, scholars, artists, diplomats from, from different countries, from Europe and from the United States and from Canada um, to discuss important and relevant ideas. And we believe that it is very important to keep talking about what is happening in Ukraine, in the world, in Russia, just to have this honest conversation about, you know, uh, our life and our future. And today we have uh, quite a special guest. Uh, He's uh, quite known um, uh, philosopher and linguist Jason Stanley, who is a professor of philosophy at Yale University. Uh, he has written many books, and one of his recent books uh, addresses uh, fascism, how fascism works, and today he is going to present something which is quite relevant to what is happening today in Russia, Ukraine, and some other countries, which is propaganda. Uh, and I will just, you know, pass this virtual fro- floor to Professor Stanley, and uh, we will be. I'm happy to listen to your lecture for 30-40 minutes, depending on your preference, and then I will moderate with Q&A. So thank you very much for being with us. It is very important for us to be able to gather here online and to listen to your talk. So uh, thank you, and the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Professor Brick. It's an honor to be speaking to my colleagues in Ukraine. So I'm going to be presenting academic work. I'm going to be, uh, because this is, it's a distinguished university. uh, And as Professor Brick said, uh, the attack is uh, imperialist, colonialist, fascist attacks are always on intellectual life as well. So I'm going to be presenting uh, uh, work for my forthcoming book with the linguist David Beaver. Uh, The book is called uh, The Politics uh, of Language. So, uh, so let me uh, now share the screen. Um, so uh, so the foundations of propagandistic speech. Um, so uh, so wh- why, so a lot of philosophy of language and linguistics are focused on information, on how we we communicate information. The cat is on the mat, uh, the store is around the corner. Uh, as a result, when we talk about propaganda, we're led to, to labels like disinformation, false claims. Uh, so, and then because it's easy algorithmically, compu, uh, computationally, uh, it's easy in models to hunt out false claims and eliminate them. But this is uh, just an extremely partial approach to uh, issues like propaganda and even political speech. Uh, for example, think of the label, the problem of disinformation. Uh, much, disinfo- much much of what we call disinformation is not, in fact disinformation or false claims. Uh, you might have, as in the case of the United States when, uh, when, uh, whenever there's sort of uh, focus on uh, on uh, crime and a incar- and, drive to incarcerate usually black uh, American men, uh they'll focus on an incident a violent incident and then and that violent incident might have happened but then they'll make it seem as if that's very typical and these violent incidents are happening everywhere but they'll, they'll they won't say that they'll just say look at this violent incident so a lot of disinformation will uh, uh takes the form of just communicating information um similarly other co- things we call disinformation uh uh Think of um, uh, vaccine conspiracy theories, uh, panics about critical race theory, uh, panics about uh about not about uh, atrocities done to a- supposed atrocities done to ethnic Russians. Uh, these are methods to build identity. Uh they're not really methods to communicate information or even disinformation. They're rather there to uh to uh to stir up emotions. And in fact, this is is the point of a lot of political speech. Let's look at, and if you look at, you know, if you have a model, an approach to speech that is only trying to to explain uh, communicating information, you know, you're, you're gonna miss out on the fact that the most famous and preserved aspects of speech are political speeches. So look at maybe the two most famous speeches uh in western intellectual history. Um Pericles' funeral oration at the end of the uh of the first uh wo- year of the Peloponnesian War and Cleon's speech in the Mytilenean debate. Um so Pericles uh per- what Pericles does in his speech is he Mixes Athenian identity with democracy, pointing out that democracy is the very spirit of Athens. That you can't really separate democracy and Athens. Democracy and Athens mean the same thing. Athens is defined by democracy. It's culture of democracy, um, and uh, and he so so he he connects Athenian identity to democracy.
0: Uh, Professor Stanley, uh, I apologize I, I think I hear you clicking the mouse but the slides are not moving so if you Oh no fact- I'm, just,
1: I'm I'm putting up uh uh I'm putting up the uh the uh do you see um oh I see what you're saying um let me go back to uh, So
0: I see only the starting slide with the foundations of propagandistic speech got it I was showing, I was showing Pericles' speech, but I'll
1: just talk about it. Uh, so what Pericles does in the funeral oration is uh, is he mixes Athenian identity with democracy. Uh, and he And he says, look, you know, Sparta, their citizens are just trained to fight from the very beginning. They're not educated. They're just told, you know, you must do what the leader tells you, here's swords, we're gonna go to war. And he says, and yet our soldiers are better. Our soldiers are better because they voluntarily fight. They choose to fight. They fight because they decide this is the culture and nation they want to preserve. So what What? Uh, what? Pericles is doing, this is a political speech. It is propaganda, not all propaganda is bad, but it mixes democracy with, with the identity of a city state. Uh, now take Cleon's speech in the Mytilenean debate. Cleon says. Cleon uh, starts um, by saying, uh, "Personally, I have an occasion enough already to observe that a democracy is incapable of, of governing others." Cleon is trying to argue that Athens should slaughter everyone uh, in, in Mytilene for the uh, f- for the for the rebellion against Athens. And what he says is that democracies democracies can't be empires because empires are brutal, empires subjugate, empires destroy. And democracies give too much, too much to intellectuals. He says, you know, you should rule not with intellectuals, but with just, you know, uh, intellectuals like want to talk and what you want, what you need to do to be an empire is just be brutal, just destroy. And this is incompatible with being a democracy. What Cleon does is he says, so the Mytilenean lives are irrelevant. The fact that he says we should forget about being a democracy, we should just be an empire. And in an empire, only our lives matter. The lives of others who are not us do not matter. And that's incompatible with being a democracy. So Cleon is saying, your Athenian identity, your ethnic Athenian identity dominates everything else, and no one's else' life matters. He's not saying that. He doesn't say that in words it's rather by focusing on athenian identity and telling you you know athenian identity must be the only thing that matters and no other law and so we can kill all the mitulinians for revolting uh that's what an empire does he is his speech focuses on an athenian national sort of city identity athenian identity whereas pericles is mixing democracy with athenian identity and he's saying, you know, it's because we are fundamentally democratic uh, that we choose to fight uh, and we are better warriors. Uh, and so so each of these, but this is not just a string of propositions, these speeches. Uh, these speeches evoke emotion. They connect identity with values and ideals. And that's something that to say the least is hard to model. <laughs> and what, we're, what we try to do in our work is uh is model that um okay let's see uh hold on uh uh let's see hold on sorry i have to uh my um microsoft powerpoint so okay so um so how do we model this um so why philosophy uh so uh how do we model uh 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 what what are the what are the puzzles that propaganda raises well Propaganda involves social meaning, schemas that are culturally assigned to actions, objects, events, and such. And it's not clear how to model social meaning. Social meaning is not, you know, a, a proposition. It's not, you know, dogs bark. Um, it's a set of emotions, symbols. Uh, we, we we need we need to attend to the way people speak, speech practices, but it's not clear how to model speech practices. And then we need to think about how being inside a group or outside a group, how identity affects communication. And that's something that's not just a matter of the propositions asserted. Generally, in the theory of meaning, we've been focusing just on what happens when people in the same group talk to each other. But what about group formation? What about speech that's meant to form a group? You know, you might think that, that you know, spreading COVID conspiracies about vaccines uh, is an attempt to spread information um, or disinformation. But what if it's instead a method of just forming a group? This is our group. These are the kinds of things we say. Okay. So um, so I'm going to skip the, the, these are so in the theory of meaning philosophy of language we tend to make certain idealizations in order to uh to uh to to make it easier to model the data uh we we assume that it's one speaker and one hearer uh that that speaker and hearer are cooperating with each other that everyone is rational um that that all the intentions are transparent um that everything relevant to interpretation is mutually known and shared um that we're sharing neutral bits of information uh that you know uh and that already you see in like cleon's speech the only perspective that's even visible is the athenian perspective and and what cleon is saying is is that's imperialism if athens wants to be an empire no one else no one else's perspective can be shared So Cleon says we have to kill all the Mytilenians because they rebelled. uh, Because you know, if we don't do that, we'll show weakness. Uh, Their lives don't even matter. Um, So there's—it's not from a neutral perspective. Okay. So um, so what? uh, But but obviously, we do all sorts of things that are not from a neutral perspective. That obviously, we do all sorts of things that are not transparent. Um, we we make all sorts of conversational moves uh, that are not transparent. For instance, uh, insinuation. Uh, suppose you're stopped by a police officer, um, uh, you suppose you're stopped by a police officer uh, and, uh, and the police officer, uh, the police officer, and you wanna bribe the police officer. I'm very sorry, officer, but I'm in the middle of, of something right now, sort of an emergency. So maybe the best thing would be to take care of this here without going to work or doing any paperwork. So here I'm insinuating that I'll give him money to get off. Um, Insinuations allow for plausible deniability. So I didn't mean that. I didn't say that. What do you mean? I wasn't offering you a bribe. If you're called on that, and that's a general feature of conversation, and and very often, especially in political speech, what you're insinuating is the primary thing, the reason you're talking in the first place. So if we can't handle insinuation, we can't have any understanding of what's going on in speech. Um, so uh, so here's uh, another example of what insinuation, what what transparency masks. Here's uh, a classic instance: a dog whistle. Um, so uh, so this is Lee uh, Atwater, George Bush's seniors, uh, nineteen eighty eight campaign manager. Uh, You start out in 1954 by saying uh, N-word, N-word, N-word. That's a slur for black Americans. By 1968, you can't say N-word, that hurts you, backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, state's rights and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes. And all these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. Um, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if that's if it's getting that abstract and that coded, we are doing away with the racial problem one, uh, uh, one way or another. So what he's talking about is that it's a coded method. When you say in American politics, we wanna cut, we wanna cut, uh, uh, we want to, uh, oh, oh, wait, uh, do people not
0: see the slides? we're discussing this now in the chat i can see the slides so i don't understand what's happening but uh i can see them uh okay one of the uh okay, okay. i uh, two people have said that they don't see the slides uh, okay um all right hmm. okay however okay so apparently i'm the only one who see a slide uh-huh. see. Uh, um, okay, so um, all right. But, so, Professor uh I'll, I'll just lecture. go on, and our IT guy will try to help you. But you can continue with the lecture. I'll and continue, and I'll try to. So, 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 um, so
1: okay. Um, so I'll continue, and then maybe the the ID ID guy can uh, let me, let me. Yeah, uh, I will chat
0: with him. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay. So. Um, okay so i'll I'll talk through as if so so a dog whistle uh is an expression that communicates uh that communicates multiple it has one innocent meaning and one problematic meaning so a dog whistle is uh, when you use a dog whistle uh you're you're communicating one thing to an audience that shares your ideology say a racist ideology but Uh, But to, but when people call you on it, when people say, uh, no, that's, that's, uh, when people say, are you saying something racist? You say, no, I'm just using the ordinary meaning. What are you talking about? So the word, well, when you describe something as a welfare program in America, for people who have racist views, they come to have a negative view of that program. They think it's for Black people, but for Black Americans. But, uh, but when politicians are then told, oh, you're using a racist word, you why are you calling it a welfare program? Uh why are you using language that's coded in that way? They'll deny. It. Um, they'll deny that uh that uh that uh they'll deny that that they uh that they uh that they meant the racist method message. Um okay, slides are visible on YouTube. Excellent. So uh so I'm going to pause while people shift to YouTube, <laughs> because you can see the the uh the um so 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 you can see the slides on YouTube. So uh so you want to have an account of thing of when politicians can engage, engage in this kind of plausible deniability. Um so the plausible deniability is when you know is when you insinuate a message that you don't literally say. Uh, another way of, of of engaging in plausible deniability is when you use a a, a, a coded word um, so uh, so both of these are methods uh, for uh, for communicating things that you don't want to be held responsible for. and we need a theory of meaning to explain that. Um, so uh, so how do we how do we do this? How do we how do we adjust a theory of meaning that's designed mainly for uh for uh com- information and disinformation, like you know, words have meanings that are things in the world. Um and when I say dogs bark, dogs refers to all the dogs, barks refers to a kind of action. I put it together, but that is just too simple for what's going on with. Political speech and propaganda, so we can extend the theory of meaning. Um, we can we can use the devices that we've used. Or we we can just I mean we can just ap- apply the things we've already done, or we can extend the scope by having new formal structures and tools. That's what we do in our work. Um, uh, or you could say, or you could say, you know, really, there's no system, that, 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 uh, you need to give an entirely new theory, uh, some theory that that is not systematic maybe, or some entirely new theory. Or you could deny that these phenomena can be theorized at all, that there's nothing general to be said about rhetoric and propaganda. Uh, so uh, so the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein in, in the philosophical investigations, uh, uh, he's criticizes uh, thinking the, the long history of thinking about meaning in philosophy and he says it's you know he talks about his famous example of slab it's modeled on this idea that there's this word world relationship we're just naming things but so much else is going on uh you know there's a whole language game when we speak each word connects us to a network of associations um but as Michael Dummett point says it's never clear whether Wittgenstein intends to be giving some radical new theory or saying you cannot theorize about this at all, that language and culture are so intertwined that really a theory of language is just a theory of culture and there's no generalizations there. And this goes into the next uh, issue of dealing with political speech and propaganda. Um, uh, maybe um, maybe that that maybe you can't make generalizations at all there's no abstracting any account of propaganda any account of russian propaganda against ukraine will just be a history of russia and a history of ukraine um you're gonna have to talk about the the long historical relations between these neighboring countries and there's nothing abstract that someone like me a philosopher of language uh can uh can tell you about um uh so uh full screen to make full screen switch slides full screen presentation okay so slides are always same slide propaganda without nutrition full screen presentation okay scops share uh okay stop share uh so which uh so share full screen presentation uh sorry about this uh
0: problem you can start sharing your slides again and I will help you to uh, okay uh,
1: so, um, so what would be a full screen uh, screen?
0: if you go with the mouse to the very uh, bottom of the slides and then to the right side there is a little icon of like an open book and you can click on it. Is that showing implausible abstraction? Mm, no, no. Didn't, nothing happened. so okay, I' just I'll just go happened. with this. You can read these right i can read this but uh, you should make sure that you know you switch between the slides yeah i'll do it how's that implausible abstraction can you see that still propaganda without neutrality oh my god maybe slideshow another option would be to save this as a pdf
1: Uh no i'm gonna do this i i figured it out
0: okay
1: how's that what do you Uh, see now implausible abstraction now we got it <laughs>
0: sorry about this One second. Got yes it? now this is full screen yeah. so, it was um... the wrong it was wrong okay okay now now everything's fine uh apologize everything's fine now
1: sorry my my bad <laughs> so okay so uh, so so um so maybe it was just too much abstraction happen happening maybe propaganda is just a story of history uh and there's no theory to be given so uh so and a, and a second concern is in explaining propaganda, in giving a model of speech uh, for propaganda, uh, you don't wanna suggest that normal speech is just the pure handing back and forth of information. Uh, and that propaganda is just this muddy way, this way of muddying this. Uh, you know, and once you clear out the propaganda, you'll just have pure information that there's no such thing as pure information whenever we speak we're speaking from a perspective and so our model of speech has to reflect the fact that we're always speaking from a perspective okay so uh so i'm gonna go so so uh so here's the architecture of the proposal um we're not just uh, groups of people are distinguished by their joint attunement to uh, to particular practices and ideas. And what you do in political speech is you try to switch people's attunements to other practices, social identities, and information. So you're switching attunements. So don't think of meaning as a relationship between uh, words and the world and, and words carry around their meanings like passenger, like cars carry around their passengers. Think of it as when we speak, we're trying to switch people's attention. We're trying to switch people's attention to practices, emotions, and also information. Uh, So so for example, the actions of telling a racist joke and using a racial slur, um, these, as we're gonna see, have resonances of racial ideologies and practices, sorry. uh and and these resonances are transmitted in part by repeated actions repeating the propaganda repeating propaganda repeating insulting slurs uh it it strengthens the point there is to strengthen people's attunement to the affect to the targets of the slurs um and that is a process that happens over time um so why practice um, uh, what what action I perform? So practices uh, practices make sense of uh, of the meaning of your action. So uh, they without without understanding the background practices, you don't understand the meaning of the of the action uh, that is being called for. So here's so Lynn Terrell, the philosopher uh, in her 2012 paper genocidal language games on the the language of the Rwandan genocide, the language used by the propagandists. Um, She talks about uh, words connections, not to what they refer to, but to linguistic practices. And when you use a word, um, its connection to these background practices is is often the function of the speech. It's it's something that you need to attend to. So so she focuses on the language of, uh, of uh, the genocidal what she calls deeply derogatory slurs. So take the example so to, in, in in Hutu power propaganda, they called Tutsi's snakes. Now what why does this why is this implicated in the run-up to the genocide in the genocide? In Rwanda, snakes are a public health hazard. Killing poisonous snakes with a machete is a man's role in a, in a household. And when a boy is allowed to take it, he is allowed to kill a snake with a machete. He is taking on this honored role as a man. So there were months and months when the Hutu power radio station, when the Hutu power movement, leaders of the Hutu power movement were calling Tutsi snakes. What were they doing? They were saying, "If if you engage in the practice towards a Tutsi, that you engage in towards a snake. Killing it with a machete, it makes you a man. So the function of calling Tutsi snakes was to regularize and normalize the idea that killing killing Tutsis with machetes will make you a man. Now what's going on when Putin talks about denoxification? Well, we've got to look at the practice of denoxification in say west germany so denazification is a practice a practice of having trials of nazis executing some imprisoning others and replacing the ideology of nazism with liberal democratic ideology in schools and other institutions putin is saying this practice will be replicated but with liberal democracy being Replaced, uh, the replaced ideology and Russian fascism replacing it. So the idea is that, that, so he's telling you what he's gonna do because of the link, because of the practices associated with denazification. Denazification involves trials. You put the leaders on trial. You replace, you do a systematic replacement of the Nazi ideology with liberal democratic ideology. Everywhere. And so you stamp that ideology out. And Putin is saying we're gonna stamp out U- Ukrainian civic nationalism and liberal democracy from institutions and schools and replace it with Russian fascism. It's the practice of denazification he's discussing. Uh so uh so. Presupposition, I'm not gonna get, we don't have that much time to get into the details of how these mechanisms work. Presupposition is is something, we're always presupposing things when we speak. So if I say, I'm picking my sister up from the airport, I'm presupposing that I have a sister. If I say, I'm not picking up my sister from the airport, I'm also presupposing that I have a sister. So we're always presupposing things. Uh, And we presuppose, uh, so if I say, it's John who solved the problem, if I say John didn't solve the problem, um, uh, then then, uh, then I'm presupposing there was a problem. So uh, so uh, what's your what's your answer to the problem of Ukrainian fascists? Presupposes that there are Ukrainian fascists. So that's propaganda. That's you know you're presupposing something very con- controversial. There's uh, you're you're presupposing that a problem of Ukrainian fascism so that's happening in the american sphere people are saying well okay you know what's your solution to the problem of ukrainian fascism well that question presupposes that there's a big problem there and that's not something that one should accept so uh so similarly using words um the presuppositions of words um the words that are used presuppose certain practices so victor klemperer in the language of the third reich calls uh says that that uh that in the in the language they used uh to uh to describe uh uh prisoners in concentration camps they called them um prisoner pieces now if you think of human beings as pieces as prisoner as pieces then you can do anything you want to them um when you think when you measure when you measure lives in terms of cadaver uh, fabatol, the utilization of carcasses, then you're presupposing practices towards those people that should never be directed against human beings. So, uh, so similarly, in uh, in um, in Golfo Alexopoulos's great recent work on um, on the gulag she talks about how um, the official language used to refer to death in prison uh, to to death to 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 the death of people and people imprisoned in the gulag was labor loss so you're acting you know you're you're just like their only function of these people is to work and when they die it's a loss of labor for the country so these are these are these ways of talking presuppose practices that you should not and ways of thinking both practices and ways of thinking that uh of towards people that you shouldn't ever uh think that you shouldn't ever apply to people so to speak of prisoners as pieces involves employing a way of speaking to describe humans that are that as presuppositions uh that that uh that restrict its application to non-humans. Only non-humans are pieces. And to understand uh, uh, counting you have to think about, you know, um, the relationship between official terms uh, and practices. Um, um, now people can be attuned to practices and ideologies. Uh, the nature of the attunement can be dispositional, emotional, or doxastic. And the point of, of of propaganda is to attune people to a practice. So the point of of uh the point of revenge propaganda, the point of saying, oh, they're attacking our people, they're doing a genocide of our people, is to attune people to revenge. Um so and repeating things, the point is repeated attunement. Um, okay, I'm gonna have to um so uh so. Uh, So typically in in the model of the theory of meaning, we only talk about words presupposing propositions. So when you say, you know, um, what's your solution to the fascism problem, you're presupposing there's a problem of fascism, um, that there is a problem of fascism, but but words also presuppose practices. When you call, when the Hutus called Tutsis snakes, they were presupposing a practice of killing snakes. Killing snakes as a way to make you a man. Uh, so uh so I'm going, I'm gonna go a bit more quickly here. Um so uh uh I'm gonna uh so I'm gonna go th- quickly because we don't have time to go through these uh the these details. Okay. So um so uh so there's uh so the in in the theory of meaning we generally say we talk about people presupposing the same thing so in a conversation we all share these common presuppositions uh we all share the presupposition that uh you know kiev is in ukraine uh that washington dc is in the united states that i'm speaking you're all presupposing that jason stanley is speaking uh jason stanley is a professor uh but we also uh we also presuppose Uh, We're also when also when we speak, we're attuned to things. Right now, we're all attuned to our computers. Uh, Right now, we're all attuned to my words, my my speech, Uh, and uh, and we can talk about the things that are in common, that are common ground, that are common between us as the things that we're all very highly attuned to. So now we're all attuned. You're all attuned to me speaking. I'm attuned to uh, to. Uh, to we're all attuned to these slides. So uh, so okay so I'm I'm going to uh, so so what we do we uh, so accommodation is when you when someone presupposes something and you accommodate to it. And this is something we do all the time and we usually do it very rapidly. So if I say I'm going to pick up my sister from the airport, you very rapidly asu- presuppose accommodate. The proposition that i have a sister um, and uh, and uh and accommodation is meant to be a common ground repair because the idea in philosophy and theory of meaning is that we're, we have a common ground and we're constantly uh making sure that we have the same common ground but uh but uh, when you have groups that hate each other that's not what they don't share a common ground you know, one groups, the the same people that one group refers to as terrorists are for another group freedom fighters. Uh, Those are two very different ways of thinking of the same kind of people, uh, but it's because you have very different perspectives. Um, So we need to think of reactions to speech as not just accommodating, accepting, but also rejecting. You know if i encounter someone i disagree that who's in a group that i'm opposed to i'm gonna and they presuppose something i might be led to reject them so that's what's going on with a lot of that's what conspiracy that's what goes on with a lot of um perfectly rational people seemingly accepting irrational things it's because they've come to think they've come to mistrust um the source of those things so much that they're just going to reject whatever the common presupposition of say science uh, of say vaccine scientists is, because those people are the enemy so you can move away uh so when you create when you make people enemies you can you can make your own audience reject anything those people say or presuppose um so uh so so here you're not just pre so so you're not just presupposing uh so with this move to attunements you're not just presupposing matching beliefs you're also uh, accommodating to dispositions and emotions um so uh so uh so what does this mean uh we normalize to the presuppositions of others when they are members of our in-group. But if we just think of this as all we do, then we're forgetting in-group out-group distinctions. If a central purpose of language is to draw in-group out-group distinctions, then we shouldn't idealize away from them. Um, what? Uh, so when when someone's in an out-group, you go away from what they presuppose. If they presuppose something as common ground, you're gonna reject it. So what you do, one function of political speech is to get people to shut out, distrust, reject the presuppositions of the people you're attacking. So the facts of my enemy are the enemies of my facts. So one group is to, so you create a conspiracy theory. You say those people are trying to kill, those people are doing a genocide. The uh, Ukrainians are doing a genocide of, of, of ethnic Russians. Um, you know. So anything they say can't be trusted. Anything they presuppose can't be trusted the facts of my enemy are the enemies, uh, enemies of my facts um so uh so this is a process that takes a while uh, the run up to the Rwandan genocide took many many months it took many many months uh years to two two years but six months of really intense hate speech in order to uh I know before this math before you've got buy in from a large population um so uh so there's uh you need so so that that you haven't had that kind of run up and lead up to the uh to, to the unprovoked vicious imperialist attack on ukraine you haven't really had that years of of uh fully saturated um revenge and hate directed against ukraine suggesting that the russian population has not been uh, has not is not prepared uh, for this kind of violence um okay so um okay so I'm gonna quickly go I'm gonna quickly do just a couple topics and then end so what about dog whistles so a dog whistle is a word that's part of multiple speech practices and the reason and the way it works is that you know if is that is that if someone if someone, someone a politician can use a dog whistle knowing that it's part of multiple speech practices an innocent speech practice that's perfectly fine but if someone says says hate Jew, says say hate jews hates jews or hates ukrainians or hates uh, or hates black black americans then they will they'll be part of that other speech practice but the politician can say oh i was only using it in the innocent way not in the non innocent way so each word we use is actually part of many speech practices. And we're always trying to add new speech practice. We're always trying to, you know, uh, politicians are always trying to create new speech practices so they can do more with each word. Um, and then, uh, and then as, a, as opposed to dog whistles, we have bullhorns. Bullhorns are very obvious uh, attacks on a group. So slurs are an example. Explicit racial slurs. Uh, when you, when a politician uses a slur or, or explicitly calls someone, you know, a Nazi. <laughs> uh, what um what they're doing is well. That's a bit more complicated when you call, because they there, they're what you're doing is you're really saying we should treat them like we treat Nazis. A slur is different. A slur is a history. Of uh, brings with it a history of a uh, 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 an idea a negative ideology towards that group, and when you use a slur in public, what you're saying is that ideology is okay. It's okay to talk about people that way, because you know um, you know I'm going to openly use it. So I'm going to open. So what it does is it's a bullhorn. It says it's now okay to think of people in this extremely negative way. Okay. So I'm going to go quickly to echo chambers, and then I'm going to end. So, um, so how does this give our give an understanding of echo chambers? So, the philosopher Thee Nagoyan draws a distinction between epistemic bubbles and echo chambers. Uh, an epistemic bubble is just when you don't even receive any information from anyone else, like North Korea. Uh, the North Korean population just doesn't receive any information from anyone else. Uh, you know. An epistemic bubble is easy, is not a big problem. It just means, I mean, you gotta get rid of the super authoritarian state, but you just have to provide the information. People be like, I never heard that. So that's an epistemic bubble. An echo chamber is more complicated. And that's an echo chamber is the real, is the harder social epistemic problem. An an echo chamber is when when, um, you create such mistrust for other groups using conspiracy theories is the normal tactic. You create such mistrust for other groups that even when they speak, you reject their presuppositions, you restri- You reject their reality because the conspiracy theory has so undermined them. And so, so this happens in liberal democracies, be they Ukraine or the United States or, or Germany. Um, you just get different groups and they mistrust each other now how do you do de- that's just the nature of a democracy democracy allows different groups to with very different values who distrust each other that's going to happen so how do but in a healthy democracy what's a sign of a healthy democracy the sign of a healthy democracy is when lots of people who disagree and are normally in, di- in different echo chambers also have a social identity where they're all members of the same group, say Ukrainians or liberal dem- Democrats. Uh, and, and so each of us has a different social identity. Maybe these people are anti-Semites or hostile to LGBT. And these people uh, are, are, uh, are are feminists and uh, these and these people are, are LGBT activists. But when it comes to defending the country, they're all say Ukrainians. So the way you see what a healthy democracy is, is when people have a powerful social identity, a social identity of the sort that Pericles tries to create in his funeral, in his famous funeral oration, when he binds Athenian identity to demo to democracy. And he says, whatever our differences, we athenians are democrats and that is indeed how to create a nation thank you
0: thank you professor stanley it was a wonderful lecture uh i will wait for questions uh we have people on youtube on facebook and i will monitor all that i should address the you know my my background we just had the Airstrike uh, alarm and uh, my shower is one of the shelters which I use, so I apologize for this. uh, uh, change uh, of the background, but you know i'm fine and I advise all my students to move to shelters if if they watch now, so there is one question already in the chat I will read it and uh, yeah and maybe we can talk about this so um so the question comes from Maria Tamanyuk, and she asks. If there is no pure information, how do we call something propaganda? Calling something propaganda seems to presuppose that those who talk are above the propaganda context standing on the more correct position.
1: Excellent. So great question <laughs> showing that you are. So that was definitely my perspective in my 2015 book, How Propaganda Works, That, that you know, propaganda is this muddy thing, and it muddies the pure information space. Uh, but, uh, but, 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 um, and and the goal is to clear it up, and then you've got a pure information space. This model, that's not going to work because everything we say, every word we use, is part of a speech practice. Indeed, multiple speech practices. The speech practices locate us. Think of the words you use. You can tell what city someone from, right? I mean, the words they use will tell you what city they come from. They'll often tell you the way they refer to a sandwich in the United States. Whether you call it a grinder, a sub sandwich, a hogo, a hoagie, or a hero, those will all tell you whether you're from Philadelphia, Chicago. So the words we use locate us. You know, this idea that we could use words that don't locate us pure words pure words don't exist so you don't want to give a theory of speech that requires there to be pure words because that would be a theory of speech for aliens
0: <laughs> uh,
1: so uh so, so 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 it's a great question then how do we then characterize what's democratically and politically okay from speech that is not um and uh and i think that you have to do it in terms of the ideologies it attunes you to so the ideologies that there are anti-democratic ideas. so i you know by the way propaganda is not propaganda is a neutral word pericles links athenian identity to democracy that is political propaganda he's trying to make he's trying to say i mean he's trying to say we are the democrats you know and that is who we are you know uh he's linking ide- that identity to to uh he, he's you know the speech links athens to democracy what it is to be athenian is to be a democrat and it's not to be uh you know a, a, an imperialist uh subject of an authoritarian autocratic state um so but it's good propaganda <laughs> it's it's good to link your identity to democracy so I think we have to maybe drop the idea that that uh, that um, that you know you know I, I'm not going to give an overall characterization of propaganda because but we should think about speech that links us to authoritarianism speech that that blocks off our capacity to be view other humans as humans and that's problematic speech um, but all speech locates us gives
0: us a perspective. thank you um, so while um, while everyone else is waiting I will just you know take advantage of me being a moderator so I can ask some of my questions um, I was intrigued by um, the way you stressed this word attuned and you um, you know you, you spent quite a lot of time talking about it and I was thinking, can it be also used in slightly different sense, in a sense uh, of being alarmed? So in a way, when people uh, are aware of the power of language and people are aware of the threat of propaganda, perhaps people can just by, by, by being attuned, people can also at the same time be alarmed to combat propaganda and pre bunk it. Do you think, um, uh, yeah, do you think there is a way for people just to design some uh, linguistic or or social norms to address propaganda, you know, to be to be alarmed against it and uh, and and to pre bunk it.
1: Uh, So that actually was one of the motivations of the very development of analytic philosophy in Europe in the in between world war one and world war ii and it was even one of the developments the reasons for applying logic to language uh in the uh in the polish school uh of logicians the idea was you know maybe we'll have have a uh general semantics that will enable us to have this neutral way of speaking so we won't be susceptible to propaganda so that was actually a motivation people forget that but that was a motivation in the interwar period for the development of my very discipline uh my very the part of my i'm a philosopher in the analytic tradition this idea that we won't be responsive to uh emotional appeals we won't be responsive to this if we're um if if you know if if we have the tools of logic (laughs) um but We need to be responsive to emotion, I would say we need to be responsive to emotional appeals we need to be responsive to the right emotional appeals the right speeches the ones that connect it's not wrong to be emotional about your country it's not wrong to be emotional about the city you come from but it's wrong to be to be emotional in a fascist way it's wrong to be like you know Cleon says To be an empire you must say the only people there are are athenians and everyone else is either athenian or there are subjects (laughs) that's the wrong way to do the emotional attachments the right way to do the emotional attachments is connected to to ideals uh, of general humanity that would prevent you from uh so uh, from uh from uh killing innocent people for example so so i think the project of uh of trying for a neutral uh neutral position um you know is understandable <laughs> uh, but i think we need to be more realistic of the about the ubiquity of propaganda uh uh uh, 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 uh the the previous question um what was the questioner's name atamaniok um it, it was really good the, um their worry is what about truth (laughs) Uh, do you give up on truth if everything has emotion everything has perspective um you know uh isn't the way to combat propaganda have a neutral perspective (laughs) but there's but we have to face the fact that there's no i mean there is truth there is reality we can be attuned to the world But there's no neutral, a-perspectival take on reality. There's no neutral, a-perspectival way of describing reality. And if we think that we need that in order to combat propaganda, we'll never combat propaganda. So, I mean, combat bad propaganda. I mean, propaganda reflects its ideologies. I'm a liberal Democrat. My ideology, I think the good ideology is, we are all humans. You don't do things, you know, democracy is a system that recognizes other people as equal equal. (laughs) and and that's a good ideology. And we need to bind that ideology to us and use it to combat other uh, ideologies that are pernicious, Um, which is the ultimate, You know, that's why we return to Thucydides. That's why we return to, you know, the two visions, democracy versus empire and colonialism, sketched by Pericles and Cleon.
0: That's fascinating because from what I have observed here in Ukraine and Russia, you know, reading uh, quite a lot of social media and debates and collecting and analyzing some data, I have seen that quite a lot of Ukrainians through some trials and errors, and just you know, uh, dialogue and collective wisdom arrived to very similar conclusion to yours without using any references to philosophy and uh, uh, analytical philosophy. Uh, so this idea that you cannot be neutral when you uh, you know um, comprehensively talking about propaganda and trying to position yourself in in, in this debate, you, you you simply cannot be neutral. And there, there is a very big debate between. Ukrainian activists and Russian activists and artists you know people who claim that you can you can just perform art and be outside of politics or outside of political debate that sport is neutral art is neutral science is neutral uh, art has those things have never been neutral one time i asked so john so in the
1: 1968 mexico city olympics there were the three two american sprinters who raised their fist in the black power fist and lost their careers and lost their so tommy smith and john carlos uh famous picture um, of the american sprinters gold medalist and bronze medalist and john carlos gave a lecture and i went to see his lecture and i asked him what did you what do you say to the charge that your protest politicized the Olympics. And he burst out laughing and he said, you're kidding me, right? We had we spent weeks and weeks training for the Olympics. And they said, you're not allowed to lose, you lose to the Russian, you're not allowed to the people from the Soviet Union, you're not allowed to lose to the people from China, you can lose to the guy from England, you can use, lose to the French guy, doesn't matter. <laughs> the Olympics have always been political. He's like, that's the
0: crate that's the most extent that the olympics were about the cold war exactly and um i, I hope i can still use you know a few minutes of your time uh because um i wanted to ask you about something else uh you have you know you, you, you have emphasized that you're discussing language and you're focused on it and speech and symbolism and yet i uh, i want to uh, ask perhaps you can speculate. About visual and non-verbal communication, uh, especially uh, given that right now the world is dominated by social media, and we observe quite a lot of events now through the lenses of TikTok and Instagram. Every day, myself and all people around me, we are watching TikToks of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers displaying what they, they're not hiding. You know, they they either brag or. Um, or just report or maybe participate in some coordination uh, information flow, I don't know, but the content is uh, vast. And this combination of visual and non-verbal communication should, I suppose, play a significant role in in, uh, creating these symbols and uh, social meaning uh, without using language per se. So can you somehow position this into your theory? Right, absolutely. My th- our theory is designed fits speech into
1: this larger picture of attunements. So uh, a picture says a thousand words. Um, you know, pictures attune us too. Uh, pictures, uh, a powerful picture uh, will, uh, you know, we'll look at a picture and say, we'll look at some of the atrocities that Russia is committing in in Ukraine and say. Nothing justifies that. Uh, there's nothing that anyone can say that can justify that. But that that's also, you know, when Putin says, oh, they're slaughtering ethnic Russians in Eastern Ukraine, that's completely made up, but you're supposed to think the same thing. You're supposed to think nothing can justify that. Uh, but so a picture, a picture uh, you know, if you think of uh, during the Syrian refugee crisis, when uh you know an, another atrocity that that this russian regime caused uh the the young three-year-old boy drowned on the on the uh on the on the beach that did so much to transform the world when uh, so so what a picture does is it 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 it, it does shut down debate <laughs> a good picture it says there's no excuse for a drowned three-year-old on a beach uh you know uh the world cannot stand for that um, so pictures are very powerful in their, in the ways they emotionally attune you and the ways they can draw discussion to an end. Yeah, it's so what what, what, right? so, so what what we, so our focus is on speech because speech, because we're both, you know, we study speech, but we're putting speech into this larger structure of social meaning that pictures have. Uh, yeah. And this, 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 this apparatus of attunement. What's special about speech is that each word is part of a social practice, and the social and the social practices of a whole sentence, they come together, they're structured. Uh, and so there's so much going on in a sentence, um, so much specific, so much specificity.
0: Yeah, it's ironic that um, at least you know, this is my intuition and that gut feeling. That somehow Russian media and propaganda machine has become its own uh, hostage. That they have created some sort of an uh, consistent images and ideas and symbols. And when these images or symbols they don't work anymore, they cannot simply drop them and create something new. They have to stick to this narrative, even at the cost of being um, laughed at. So, just uh, to give you a practical example, there is this famous or infamous a group of Russian soldiers from Chechnya, they're called uh, Kadyrovtsy, which is uh, the narrative is constructed that they are, uh, you know, great fighters and troopers, and they should come to Ukraine uh, to perform as as the best legion or something like that. But in fact, what they're doing, they just marching around somewhere in villages, they're making TikToks and Instagram, they're just firing in the sky, and they do not participate in the actual combat, which Makes other people kind of suspicious. So actually, people who watch this on social media, they're rather laughing at this uh, perform performance. So and they are not taken seriously anymore. So and you know, um, propaganda instead, can backfire. Yeah, propaganda but can you can't backfire.
1: Switch, yeah. But you can't. Our, our work explains this. You can't switch quickly from yes. once you choose a narrative because it takes time. It, mm-hmm. You know it there's always uh there's always um uh you 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 need a, a propaganda campaign so we talk about adaptation that that uh that accommodation is adaptation over time so you know what what i think happened is you had a very quick propaganda campaign that in no way created any kind of uh you know uh you know it takes months and years um mm-hmm. to motivate to get people behind unjustified violent action and so what you had in the russian case was a very quick propaganda campaign that that was designed to create fear uh, intimidation uh and all of this very quickly and 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 it didn't work immediately because propaganda campaigns don't work immediately they take a long time uh and uh and you know you can't just drop it
0: yeah um as you said it can big fire and you cannot change it quickly absolutely no. um well we are running out of time um if you if you don't mind, I, I I would like just to close this uh, presentation with um, with our own propaganda. Yeah, here at Keyes School of Economics, we um, we um, emphasize that these lectures um, also designed not only to share knowledge and discuss knowledge, uh, but also to raise awareness and to um, you know to to keep talking about Ukraine. And we uh, have created our own donation page uh, and we ask people who are watching to, to donate, to, uh, to support humanitarian aid uh, in Ukraine. Um, we uh, have our, our own foundation for that. It is registered in Washington, D.C., so it's quite transparent. You can pay in dollars, euros, cryptos. Um, American organizations can expect uh, all the tax deductions. And uh, we believe that this is very important to donate to local Ukrainian organizations, not only to us, to any uh, uh, certified Ukrainian organization, because we know how it works on the ground. We know the logistics and we know what kind of stuff um, should be delivered immediately. And we are working with medical kits, with helmets, with um, bulletproof vests. I will put uh, our donation page to the chat. But it is very easy to find us, you can just Google Keith School of Economics and you'll find our donation page on the very first main web page of, of our school and. um uh Jason Professor Stanley, thank you very much, I you know, I would love to talk with you all day, I I think it was an amazing presentation and I actually uh, enjoyed both your slides and our Q a session, it was. I, you know, it's such a pleasure to have this open conversation and I wish to invite you to peaceful Kiev and uh, you can present your books, you can talk to our students when everything is over, we will be very, very happy to host you and you know to, to talk about other philosophical concepts.
1: Thank you, I was in Kiev in, in 2017 uh, speaking to the School of uh, Ukrainian School of Political Studies and I loved the city uh and uh and Ukraine is just wonderful
0: thank you thank you very much so we're looking forward to have you there again there uh thank you and um